welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, March 16th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The UK economy looks set to avoid a recession as the Chancellor announces the 2023 budget. Honduras seeks a diplomatic switch from Taiwan to China. The U.S. releases a third of electronics detained under the PRC Forced Labor Act. The Dow Jones Index falls as Credit Suisse shares plummet. A Texas judge considers banning abortion pills in the U.S. Syria's Assad holds talks with Putin in Moscow. Russia's ambassador to the U.S. is summoned over the Black Sea drone crash. A U.S. House panel reviews Biden's family bank reports. A whistleblower doctor who alleged China covered up the SARS outbreak dies. And FIFA confirms an expanded 2026 World Cup. In our top story, the United Kingdom's economy is set to avoid a recession with the release of their 2023 budget. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, BBC News, Guardian, CNBC, and Financial Times. Following UK Chancellor Jeremy Hunt's announcement of the 2023 budget on Wednesday, the Office for Budget Responsibility, or OBR, forecast that the UK won't enter a technical recession this year, with inflation reportedly set to drop to 2.9%, a reduction by more than half its current rate by the end of 2023. The budget included scrapping the lifetime allowance on tax-free pension contributions and continuing both the freeze on fuel duty for another year and government support for Brits' energy bills until June. Corporation tax will also rise from 19% to 25%, and defense spending will go up by £11 billion, or $13.2 billion U.S. dollars, in the next five years. Wednesday's budget comes amid ongoing challenges to the U.K. economy, including skyrocketing gas and electricity bills and growing turbulence in global financial markets after concerns about mammoth European lender Credit Suisse. Hunt also addressed parents' concerns about childcare, announcing 30 hours of free weekly childcare for children under three years of age and additional funding for schools and local authorities providing wraparound care between 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. While £9 billion, or $10.8 billion, of business tax breaks were put at the heart of Hunt's budget for growth, it also focused on reinvigorating Britain's workforce by prompting the economically inactive back to employment. Although fresh forecasts have revealed a contrastingly positive outlook on the UK economy than was previously predicted, the economy is still set to shrink by 0.2% in the coming year. Analysts say Britain should recover to an annual growth rate of 1.9% by 2027. Thank you, Eric. Here on our podcast, we like to separate the narrative spin from the facts. Well, you just heard Eric lay out the facts for that story. We're going to start off our narrative spins with a right narrative provided by Bloomberg. This budget was a minimalist masterclass. By steering clear of controversial or divisive topics, Hunt and the conservatives have kept their powder dry in the lead-up to the next election. Given their current polling, a dull balance sheet that shows just enough attention to the cost-of-living crisis facing voters through its child care and energy bill provisions without overspending is about as strategic a move as the government could make. Thank you, Adam. The left narrative is courtesy of The Mirror. After 15 years in government, the conservatives are disguising a faltering economy as a period of stability. Despite calling it a budget for growth, the economy is still shrinking, and ordinary Brits are paying the price for Tory mismanagement. 
real living standards are continuing to fall while governments are prioritizing the 1%. You being a 1%er in the U.S., Adam, can you relate to that? You know what? I, I can relate to it while I'm relaxing in my hot tub on my 70-foot yachts on the coast of Catalina. I can think about the little man mowing his yard. Do you still have two or, th- or do you have three islands now? I actually have six, and <laughs> I sold three of them to Nick Cage. <laughs> Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. Honduras seeks a diplomatic switch from Taiwan to China. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, CNN, BBC News, the LA Times, and Reuters. Honduras President Xiomara Castro on Tuesday announced on Twitter her government will seek to establish diplomatic relations with China implying it will be severing relations with Taiwan. Castro, a democratic socialist who won the presidency in 2021 after campaigning on a radical agenda to counter years of corruption and scandal, said during her campaign that the country would establish diplomatic ties with China. But in January 2022, Castro's transition team said it would maintain relations with Taiwan. However, her latest tweets suggest that that has changed. In response to Castro's tweet, Taiwan cautioned Honduras against falling into China's trap. The change in policy would leave Taiwan recognized by just 13 countries. China, which considers self-ruled Taiwan as part of its territory, refuses most engagements with countries that maintain formal diplomatic ties with China. Castro's announcement, which could harm relations with the U.S., comes ahead of next month's visit by Taiwan President Xi Ing-Win to the U.S. and Central America. She's expecting to visit Guatemala and Belize and meet with U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, the Republican from California. Thank you, Adam, for the facts of that story. It's being spun a couple of different ways. The first one is an anti-China narrative coming from Voice of American News. Honduras is being used by China in its campaign to isolate Taiwan. The plan uses trade and investment including its multi-billion dollar belt and road initiative to build ports, railways, power plants, and other infrastructure for developing nations as incentives for switching diplomatic ties. Before Honduras, where China is constructing a massive dam, China essentially bribed Costa Rica, Panama, El Salvador, and Nicaragua. And that anti-China narrative is followed up by a pro-China narrative provided by China Mission. Taiwan is an inalienable part of China and the PRC government is the country's representative. Any attempt to unilaterally add preconditions and provisios to the One China principle is illegal. So Honduras and other Central American countries that haven't done so already should do the right things and cut ties with Taiwan. Metaculous Prediction Community is providing their nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 55% chance that the U.S. will recognize Taiwan within a year if Taiwan declares independence by 2035. Right now, Taiwan's unrecognizable. <laughs> Maybe because they've got to mature into their, you know, their <laughs> own kind of country. You know, Right now, they're kind of in that awkward stage. The they awkward, don't really look like themselves. The awkward teenage stage. You know, they're a young country. <laughs> yeah. In our next story, the United States releases a third of electronics detained under the PRC Forced Labor Act. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Wall Street Journal, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, South China Morning Post, and CNN. The U.S. Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, revealed on Tuesday 
that it has released over one-third of electronic devices, including solar panels, it had detained since 2022 under the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act, or UFLPA. The agency released 552 electronic shipments valued at $345 million out of a total of over 1,600 industry shipments worth $841 million that was halted for examination. The majority of the shipments reviewed originated from Malaysia and Vietnam, with a small fraction coming from Thailand and China. More than 2,300 shipments have been blocked using the act, the CBP reported in February of this year. The CBP does not expect to release much data regarding alleged violations of the act, and it is prohibited from identifying companies that are the intended recipients of goods that have been detained under the law. The law establishes a rebuttable presumption that imports mined, produced, or manufactured wholly or in part in China's Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region are prohibited entry into the U.S. They can only enter the U.S. if the CBP determines through clear and convincing evidence that the items were either not produced using forced labor or that the law does not apply to the shipments. In August 2022, it was reported that the supply of goods from Xinjiang to the U.S increased to its highest levels in 10 months despite the passage of the act. Though the data only showed what was exported from the province, experts said, rather than what was imported into the U.S. The UFLPA, which passed in 2021, took effect in mid-2022 as the U.S. ramped up efforts to block goods from Xinjiang citing allegations from the U.S. State Department and other Western governments that Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities in the region have been subject to a raft of human rights abuses since 2017, including forced labor, torture, and unlawful killings. Thank you, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative spin provided by HRW. The U.S. should be vigorously enforcing the UFLPA to prevent imports linked to forced labor by Uyghurs and other persecuted groups in China. The U.S. government should also enforce existing laws to impose financial penalties on companies for importing or attempting to import goods linked to forced labor in China. U.S. Customs must send a message to businesses, China, and the American public that the U.S. government will not ignore forced labor and crimes against humanity against the Uyghur people. An establishment critical narrative is coming from Counterpunch. The primary motivation behind U.S. sanctions against China and PRC-made products is fear of its inability to sufficiently keep up with the Asian powerhouse's rapid scientific and technological advancements. The U.S. obsession with Xinjiang has less to do with human rights and more to do with the fact that a third of the world's textiles and clothing come from China, and the northwestern province is responsible for 87% of the country's total cotton output. Ultimately, human rights abuses, real or imagined, are being used as part of the U.S. ruling class's obsession with great power competition. The Dow Jones falls as Credit Suisse shares plummet. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNBC, Fox News, Forbes, Yahoo Finance, and Bloomberg. Credit Suisse shares hit a record low on Wednesday as European banks reel amid investors' concerns in the wake of Silicon Valley Bank's collapse last week. The bank's shares fell as much as 30.8%, driving a 7% fall in the European banking index. The U.S. stock market also took a massive hit as concerns about the global banking industry deepened. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 406 points, or 1.3%, while the S&P 500 
dropped 1%. The Swiss bank's losses came after its largest investor, the Saudi National Bank, or the SNB, said it couldn't provide Credit Suisse with more financial assistance. The Saudi lender acquired a nearly 10% stake in Credit Suisse last year, which it can't surpass due to regulatory constraints. The CEO of investment firm BlackRock stoked greater worries in a letter warning that the recent collapses of SVB, Signature Bank, and Silvergate Capital could be the first dominoes to drop before a political cascade hits the U.S. banking sector with more shutdowns coming. The U.S. Treasury is monitoring the situation surrounding Credit Suisse and is in touch with its international counterparts as a Zurich-based lender has been struggling to contain deposit outflows. Amid the turmoil, Swiss authorities and Credit Suisse held talks Wednesday to explore different ways to stabilize the financial institution. The Swiss National Bank has reportedly said it will provide the bank with liquidity if needed. Adam, thank you for the facts. Let's look at the spins, beginning with an establishment critical narrative. It's coming from Zero Hedge. The 2023 financial crisis is here, and it is not surprising that we are in this situation. Unfortunately, government officials are repeating the same mistakes of 2008 by bailing out failed banks and creating programs that will allow banks to acquire capital artificially. We are just at the beginning of a new collapse, and people's money isn't safe in this financial environment. And a pro-establishment narrative provided by Boston Globe. While there certainly are causes for concern regarding the economy and banking sector specifically, we are not experiencing a 2008-style collapse, and failed banks are not being bailed out. Regulators are doing their best to secure the funds of depositors while not repeating the mistakes of the past. Do you feel like your money's safe, Adam? I keep it in a little, yeah, I keep it in a mattress in my bed. Oh, so that's where it is. <laughs> no, okay. no, no, that's not where it is. No, no, no. <laughs> that's not where it's at at all. Turning our attention back to the United States as a Texas judge is considering banning the abortion pill in the U.S. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Associated Press, CBS, the Texas Tribune, and NBC. U.S. District Judge Matthew Kaczmarek was set to hear arguments on Wednesday over whether mifepristone, an abortion pill, should be banned nationwide. The pill was granted approval over two decades ago. When used with a second pill, the drug is the most common method of abortion in the U.S. Kaczmarek, an appointee of former President Trump, will hear arguments in Amarillo from the Alliance for Defending Freedom, a pro-life Christian group on behalf of several anti-abortion groups and physicians. The group claims that the FDA exceeded its regulatory authority in improving the drug and has removed acceptable safeguards surrounding its distribution and use. These include dosage and route of administration amendments in 2016, as well as lifting an in-person dispensing requirement allowing pills to be mailed in 2021. Lawyers from the Department of Justice, the producer of Mifepristone, as well as the challenging group, will be present to make their arguments. Anonymous sources have claimed that Kaczmarek delayed placing the hearing on the public docket until late the evening before to minimize disruptions and possible protests. The Biden administration has argued that the challenging group doesn't have legal standing to bring the lawsuit. Medication-based abortion is currently legal in 22 states, 15 of which must be prescribed by a doctor, as well as in Washington, D.C. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story. As you can imagine, we've got a left narrative attached to it provided by L.A. Times. The Texas lawsuit is weak. 
As mifepristone has been proven safe and effective for years, the drug, if anything, has been overly regulated since its approval in 2000. The attempt to ban its use highlights the extreme and dangerous lengths that anti-abortion activists will go to attack civil rights. In a post-Roe v. Wade world, such assaults on abortion will continue unless states and Congress take a stand. Western Journal gives us a right narrative. While mifepristone has been advertised and sold to women as a fundamental need, in reality, the drug is a synthetic steroid that causes healthy reproductive systems to malfunction. With deadly infection risks and daunting adverse effects, it is little wonder that the Texas lawsuit is questioning the legitimacy of the FDA's approval. And the Nerds of Metaculous have an opinion on this story. They say that there's a 4% chance that elective abortion will be banned nationally in the U.S. before 2030. And turning our attention to news out of Moscow, where Syria's Assad holds talks with Putin. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, France 24, the state of Alabama, AI Monitor, Reuters, and Bloomberg. On Wednesday, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad began talks with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Moscow regarding strengthening bilateral economic and political ties, the humanitarian situation in Syria, and improving Damascus and Kara ties. In his first trip to Russia since September 2021, Assad arrived on Tuesday with a large ministerial delegation, where he was received by Moscow's special envoy Mikhail Bogdanov and Russian ambassador to Damascus Alexander Yefimov. Also on Wednesday, the deputy foreign minister of Syria, Turkey, and Russia were expected to meet in a bid to restore ties between Ankara and Damascus. Iran will also be present through a senior advisor to the Iranian foreign minister. This follows the first such talks in Moscow in December between the defense ministers of Russia, Turkey, and Syria since the outbreak of the Syrian war in 2011. Ankara has largely supported the armed opposition to Assad. In 2015, Moscow intervened in the Syrian civil war, assisting the Syrian government in regaining control over large swaths of the country it had previously lost to armed groups. Syria is home to a permanent Russian airbase and Russia's only warm water port outside the former Soviet Union. Assad's visit to Moscow comes days after senior U.S. military officials visited U.S. forces and their local allies in northwestern Syria, where Washington has maintained a presence for nearly eight years, and after China recently brokered a diplomatic reapproachment between Tehran and U.S. ally Saudi Arabia. All right, those were the facts, and here are the spins. The establishment critical narrative is the first one coming from The Citizen. The visit to Moscow by Assad, as well as the deputy foreign ministers of Turkey, Syria, and Iran, is another sign that the U.S. is increasingly unable to impose its own will on the region and that its hegemonic position is crumbling. Meanwhile, the U.S. continues its illegal occupation of Syrian territory in order to plunder the country's oil wealth under the guise of fighting terrorism. The Global South is aware that Washington is behind the region's chaos and conflicts, and with Moscow's support, there's an opportunity for a return to cooperation and stability. And also a pro-establishment narrative provided by Al-Arabia. The fact that Director Assad is being courted in Moscow while his country lies in ruins underscores the inhumane character of the Putin regime. It's Assad who brutally put down peaceful protests in 2011 and, backed by Russia and Iran, waged a bloody war against his own people with hundreds of thousands of deaths. 
While more and more regional powers consider normalizing their relations with Syria, the West must continue to stand with the Syrian people and ensure that Assad is held accountable for his crimes. The conflict in Ukraine continues as we look at day 385 as the Russian ambassador to the U.S. is summoned over the Black Sea drone crash. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, TASS, and Ukrainska Pravda. Russia's ambassador to the U.S., Anatoly Antonov, was summoned to a meeting with the U.S. Department of State on Tuesday after a U.S. surveillance drone crashed into the waters of the Black Sea near the Crimean Peninsula, which Russia annexed in 2014. In a statement, the U.S. European Command said two Russian Su-27 fighter jets intercepted the MQ-9 Reaper drone while it was operating within international airspace. It added that the Russian jets dumped fuel on the drone and flew in front of it several times in a reckless, environmentally unsound and unprofessional manner, before one of the jets struck the propeller of the drone, causing it to go down in international waters. Meanwhile, Russia's defense ministry said the drone had its transponders switched off and was flying in airspace declared off-limits by Russia as part of its special military operation, stating that this restriction was communicated with countries in accordance with international norms. The ministry also said that its jets had not fired their weapons or made any physical contact with the drone. After being summoned, Antonov described the flying of the drone as, quote, a hostile act and said it was used to gather intelligence, which is later used by the Kyiv regime to attack our armed forces and territory. He further argued the U.S. would behave in the same way if a Russian surveillance drone was operating near San Francisco or New York. Nonetheless, Antonov added, quote, We believe it is important that the lines of communication should remain open. Russia does not seek confrontation and stands for pragmatic cooperation in the interests of the peoples of our countries. Elsewhere, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Russian mercenary group Wagner PMC, said on Wednesday that his forces had taken control of Zalishnyanskoy, a further settlement near Bakhmut, as his forces continue with plans to encircle the city. A spokesman for Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky reiterated on Tuesday that defending Bakhmut remained a top priority for Ukraine. In attacks over the past day, Ukrainian officials said one civilian was killed and 16 more were injured in Russian attacks on the Donetsk region. Meanwhile, two civilians were killed and one more was injured in Kharkiv, while four civilians were injured in Kherson. The regions of Sumy, Odessa, and Zaporizhia were also attacked without reports of civilian casualties. Thank you for the facts, Eric. Our spins start with a pro-establishment narrative provided by Associated Press. The U.S. drone was conducting routine operations in international waters. The actions of Russian pilots were unsafe, unprofessional, and a brazen violation of international law. This incident could have led to a dangerous escalation between two nuclear-armed superpowers. TASS brings us the pro-Russian narrative. The U.S. drone strayed into a restricted zone with its transponders turned off. It did this to gather intelligence that would be used in Ukrainian attacks on Russia and its armed forces. This was a hostile act, and Russia responded to the threat appropriately. The U.S. would have acted the same way if the roles were reversed. And there's a nerd narrative that says there's a 1% chance that Russia will be removed from the U.N. Security Council by 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. I don't see why Russia acted so violently. I mean, how could they think that a drone called a Reaper was hostile? You know, it's so grim. Ah, right? <laughs> like they think it was bringing the end or something, delivering <laughs> yeah, their death. Right. Jeez. 
A U.S. House panel is set to review Biden family's bank reports. And here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Post, CNN, USA Today, and The Hill. According to a U.S. House Oversight Committee spokeswoman, staff investigating the Biden family's business dealings were set to begin reviewing certain bank activity reports related to members of the Biden family and their business partners on Wednesday afternoon. House Oversight Chairman James Comer, the Republican from Kentucky, had been seeking the bank records known as Suspicious Activity Reports, or SARs, claiming that they could show improper influence over Joe Biden. A SAR includes any transaction over $5,000, flagging it for additional review from the Treasury Department, which reportedly received 3.6 million such alerts in 2022. Comer is seeking 150 alerts pertaining to transactions involving Hunter Biden and the president's brother, James Biden. Comer started the investigation into the Biden family finances in January with a letter requesting information from the Treasury Department. The panel has since sent out a number of requests for additional information. In February, however, a lawyer representing Hunter Biden said that the committee's requests hold no legislative purpose. According to a press statement, the Treasury Department has granted the committee an in-camera review of the documents. This means there will be some restrictions on how the committee can view and access them. Thank you, Adam, for the facts of that story. Vanity Fair is giving us the first spin. It's a democratic narrative. It says this probe underlines the hypocrisy of the new House, which has halted the Democrat-led investigation into former President Donald Trump's tax returns while at the same time launching an unfounded investigation into President Biden and his family. Comer has had an unnecessary fixation on Hunter Biden for years and is merely using him to target the president. And a Republican narrative spin provided by New York Post. This investigation is prudent, as there's plenty of evidence that Joe Biden was actively involved with his son Hunter Biden's shady business dealings. And it's only fair to the American people that the situation is investigated to determine whether or not presidential influence was compromised. I bought one of those laptops, the Hunter Biden edition laptop. Oh, did you? Yeah, all of my data disappeared. All of your data disappeared. That's amazing. Yeah. A whistleblower doctor who alleged China's SARS cover-up dies. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, South China Morning Post, Associated Press, New York Post, and Reuters. Zhang Yanyong, a former PRC military surgeon who blew the whistle on Chinese authorities' alleged cover-up of the 2003 SARS epidemic, died of pneumonia on Saturday at the age of 91. A source who knows Zhang's family said the surgeon tested positive for COVID in January, but it is unknown if he died from the virus. Yang Yong gained notoriety after he sent a letter in April 2003 accusing the Chinese government of understating the severity of the SARS outbreak. After Chinese media ignored Yang Yong's email of the letter, Western outlets leaked it to the public. Yang Yong served as a chief surgeon at the People's Liberation Army's primary hospital in Beijing during the student-led protests centered around Tiananmen Square in 1989. He and his wife were put on house arrest periodically for their statements. Even in his old age, Yang Yong was still a politically sensitive public figure, and news of his death was not reported in Chinese state media. Zhang is survived by his wife, Hua Zhangwei, and his two children. Thank you, Eric. We have an anti-China narrative provided for this story by The Diplomat. China covered up the SARS outbreak in 2003, which cost thousands of lives. Afterward, China used its failures in addressing that crisis to create a state of complete control 
when the COVID pandemic erupted in 2020. Instead of apologizing for its mistakes, China ignored any responsibility while setting up gruesome propaganda that restricted basic rights during the most recent pandemic. The National Health Commission of the PRC is giving us a pro-China narrative. China has been on the cutting edge of fighting viral diseases for two decades, and its scientists have learned from the SARS outbreak of 2003 to improve its efforts against COVID. PRC doctors have expedited processes and created technology that can detect and fight against viruses. While deadly outbreaks are tragic, China is learning as information evolves to make the world safer. And in our final story today, FIFA confirms that it has expanded its 2026 World Cup. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Sky News, New York Times, Washington Post, Axios, and BBC News. On Tuesday, ahead of its Congress in Kigali, Rwanda, FIFA announced that the 2026 World Cup will have a record 104-game program, as the tournament will expand from 34 to 48 teams. The announcement means that the event, co-hosted by Canada, Mexico, and the U.S., will have 40 more matches than its latest edition in Qatar last year. Originally, the 2026 World Cup was expected to have 80 matches. The change comes as the world's governing soccer body revisited the planned format for the next World Cup, following a tense finish to the group stage in Qatar, splitting the 48 teams into 12 four-team groups instead of 16 three-team groups. While tackling concerns about possible collusion of the three-team groups and ensuring that all the teams will play at least three games. The expansion is controversial, as the tournament will run for 40 days, compared to 28 last year, contributing to an already busy schedule for soccer's top stars. The top two teams in each group will advance to the knockout stage, along with eight best third-place teams, with a road to the final match, which will be played on July 19th, being comprised of eight matches rather than the current seven. FIFA last changed the World Cup's format in 1998, expanding it to 32 teams and establishing the four-team group system, in which the top two progressed to the knockout stage. Thank you, Adam, for the facts. The first spin is Narrative A coming from Independent. Though FIFA has finally recognized the obvious mistake that it would be making by getting rid of four-team groups, 104 games in 40 days is just too much in a calendar that has been increasingly congested. Instead of promoting the wellness of the game and players, soccer's governing bodies are focused on exploiting it to maximize their financial and political capital. And a Narrative B provided by The Athletic. These changes are indeed disruptive to the preferred status quo, but most FIFA member associations are dependent upon the money the governing body remits via development grants. This expansion is not only financially important, as the World Cup is by far the main revenue source for FIFA, but it's also an inclusive move that will ensure 16 new countries in the tournament. We have our final nerd narrative of today's podcast coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 76% chance that Brazil will win the FIFA World Cup by the end of year 2050. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, March 16th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team that extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. If you'd like more information on Improve the News, visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.